Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today, we're examining the issue of women entrepreneurs. And frankly, there aren't that many of them, at least not compared to their male counterparts. Why is that? Well, some say that there are fewer women in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs in colleges, commonly called STEM programs. And there are fewer women in STEM professions overall, therefore fewer innovators. Others argue that venture capital groups and other investors looking for startup companies are dominated by men, and therefore women innovators are often overlooked or passed over. Some say there's a lack of women entrepreneurial role models, and that discourages other women from pushing a new idea or concept. And some say that the entrepreneurial workspace is a hostile work environment for women. To explore this topic further, we've talked with four women to get their views. Three work directly with female innovators and entrepreneurs, and one has lived the life of an entrepreneur running her own corporation. They all give their unique perspectives about this topic. Jennifer Simon is the executive director of regional innovation at Ohio University and has spent the bulk of her professional career leading entrepreneurial efforts. She tells us about why, in her opinion, there are so few women innovators and some of the things that stand in their way. She also suggests what needs to be done to increase the numbers. We did a series on innovation, and we did 31 different shows, and it was predominantly male-dominated, not because we didn't want to talk to females, but there weren't many females out there to talk to mm -hmm. unless they were in administrative positions. So talk to me about the role of women in 2016 in, in entrepreneurship and innovation. Well, we've we face an issue. We face several issues around empowering more women to be part of this ecosystem. Um, a lot of work has been done, obviously, from a research perspective across the country. And the Kauffman Foundation has put out a publication about, uh, you know, sort of what are some factors to make for healthier uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. And they talk about density as being one of those those factors. So, the number of small businesses that are being created, obviously, 
you know, the, the actually the number of male businesses being created are those owned by, you know, male um, individuals has increased of late. And the number of women who own businesses sort of has that stag, you know, has been stagnant. As we are building more and more businesses, there is that opportunity for us to find more women to participate. I mean, another factor is around fluidity and the. Now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so so some examples. So um, as populations uh, uh, flux, as the labor market sort of reallocates, and look as we look at. Uh, from a high-growth business perspective and advanced um, industries, you know, where are women in all of that? And when, when you look at that, what we're finding is that women who are in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, um, nearly 50% of the women that are in those industries will leave due to gender bias and a hostile work environment. When you go to a meeting or you talk to service providers or you're looking for a mentor and 75% of those individuals are male, uh, you know, there is that, that feeling of, of, of being, you know, who do, I, who do I talk to that understands me or completely understands who I am. Understands issues like work-life balance, uh, uh, those types of things? Yes, and I don't want to overgeneralize because I know there are a lot of men who also face face that. But we're trying to determine, okay, what is it that really leads women in that that direction? And a lot of that is work-life balance and, and the understanding. And we communicate, we as women communicate differently. We have, you know, uh, empathy in, in different ways, I think, than, um, than a lot of men. Um, and, and that really requires a different set of skills and being able to bring women onto your team to be part of your entrepreneurial um, activities. Uh, so connectivity is, is another piece of this. So how well networked are women, are they taking advantage of networking opportunities that people put forward? So for example, we host, we, um, Ohio University, host on a quarterly basis an entrepreneurial and technology uh, happy hour, a mixer. And we have, I would say actually, it's probably a 50-50 split on uh, female versus male. However, when you look around the room, to your earlier point, the people who are service providers and people that are helping the companies are women. Um, you know, so we have some more that we, we need to do. Um, one angle or one opportunity, I think, in this connectivity piece is for women to be on boards of directors for companies, for corporations, and to seek out those kind of opportunities, um, you know, it, we all have that responsibility to continue to better ourselves and bring what we need to to the table. And I think that is, is one area in particular. 
Um, and, and the other that I am very interested in is the diversity of um, opportunity and the diversity of industries, the diversity of demographic groups. Uh, one of the things I learned from our executive business coach was that um, Latinas are the fastest growing segment of the population when it comes to new business creation. It's a small segment, but they're growing rapidly. Um, some of that is economic necessity, right? We've talked about that before in this region. People, and nationally, people started companies when they've lost their jobs, right? I've got to do something. Um, but we're seeing um, that shift as well. So all is not lost, I think, when I, uh, you know, when I, when I hear those sorts of statistics. And so when we take a look at this cultural shift, a large, this is a large cultural shift. It's not, you know, tomorrow we're going to have a program and, you know, it's going to be 100% women that participate. It's, it's not that. But there are people, uh, Carol Clark, who runs X uh, Squared uh, Angel Group in Columbus, is almost exclusively focused on making investments in female uh, companies. Um, she has people who are board members that are that are women that are part of what what she does. Uh, she also they also make investments in other companies, but their focus and her focus as a as a woman who has been in the technology sector uh, for decades is to to grow that and and part of that not only is the capital availability, but it's also finding the mentors that you need as an individual. Um, and in putting yourself out there um, to ask the question, well, mentors in general are kind of, you know, it, it means that sometimes we can be vulnerable when we're sharing with a mentor the issues that we need to have, you know, have fixed. However, um, women, I think, do a fairly good job of being able to take those role models and uh, be able to do something with that advice. So female to female mentor, mentorship, and there's an understanding that there may not be male to female mentorship. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, I think the male— On, on certain life issues, perhaps, or, or communication issues, or— Right, exactly. I I think that's true, and I just—I also would say that having both male and female mentors, I think, are it's very important to have because you have um, you know that diversity of opinion, and uh, again, I I always worry about uh, you know about sh putting everybody in their boxes or in their groups, and this is what happens across the board. But the numbers play out that there is definitely a, a, a problem for women. And so um, role models are def definitely a big part of, um, you know, what, what we do. Who are we holding up to others to see, um, you know, hey, if, if she can do this, think about how you can also do that. Um, an example on campus, for for example, is Jerry Bate, who is a, a researcher on campus who uh, is an entrepreneur, um, has had difficulties in her, her entrepreneurial endeavors, however, has stayed at it, you know, continues to work and um, hard on what is the next, what's the next best thing. 
she is involved with the Margaret Boyd scholars here on campus um, in mentoring young women. And, and one of the things that she's done is she brought me in actually to talk with that group about entrepreneurship and how to be involved. So she's one of those people that serves as a role model that is already sort of in the, the trenches with people. Uh, and I've also found it interesting, and I think we're going to find this in our new role, regional role, is um, people don't necessarily realize that they're small business owners or they're entrepreneurs already. Uh, there was a young woman who makes um, uh, like hats and scarves and all these other things, and I was talking with her about it, and she's like, well, I don't really, you know, I sell these things, but I don't really see myself as an entrepreneur. Well, you're meeting a need somebody has when, when we're all freezing. Not every you know. product is a scientific that's, uh, invention. That's it. And so I think people, when they hear the word entrepreneur, that's what they relate that to. High that tech. This has to be high growth or this has to be high tech. And it's really beyond that. I've been reading a little bit about this. And, and one of the things that has come through in a Fortune article and, and a couple of other articles is that most venture capitalists are men or companies that are dominated by, by men. And although you mentioned one, there are few women involved in venture capital uh, uh, kind of investments. Mm -hmm. Uh, is that true? And if it is, does that have a role in in perhaps fostering more men in the entrepreneurial space? It's with the venture capital world. It's a very interesting space, and obviously, it is predominantly uh, you know male run. Um, however, I have witnessed women who are part of either their they're partners within a fund. Um, they are involved on behalf of the fund, on the board of directors, or you know whatever that might be. And um, you know there are other funds beyond what I had mentioned that are really focused on on female uh, entrepreneurs. Um, I have seen some of our own uh, venture capital funds in our area, um, Athenian Ventures, for example had uh, invested in Manta, uh, one of the first investors in Manta, which is a kind of a business intelligence kind of um, program. And uh, the first CEO was a woman, and, and she was part of getting the thing built up and, and growing it. And, um, you know, investing, I think a lot of these investors rarely care if you are a woman or a male, they just want to know who's going to get the job done. Who's you know, but we can't kid ourselves and not think that there is some bias when you walk in the room um, around confidence. You know, are you presenting yourself in a confident way? Women are a little more risk adverse than men, so they they may not project as a result that you know a hundred percent. I believe in in what I'm doing, um, and so that. Being risk adverse, I think you would see that, that that sometimes plays a role in the investments and who, you know, what what investments are um, are going out, you know, are out the doors. Cotton, who are they going to? You talked about STEM, and, and I think it's pretty common knowledge that there's difficulty in the American both workplace as well as educational environment of recruiting women to 
uh, STEM type uh, uh, degrees uh, and STEM type backgrounds. So there's a recruitment problem. And then as I see it from what you've said that if uh, the innovation is uh, captured around uh, engineering and and that kind of product development, STEM type product development, whether it's in pharmaceuticals or or or, or a an invention, mm-hmm. an engineered invention, that there's a a, a lack of women mm-hmm. in, in in that group. Yet there's a group of women who are uh, trying to develop other products that are not STEM-based and other services that are not STEM-based. And those are the women that are, are coming along in the pipeline right now. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a correct characterization? I, I think so. That's what we've witnessed. I mean, that, you know, that's what I've witnessed professionally. But I also have started to witness back into the STEAM environment uh, people like Sonia Nujar, who's brought, been brought on by the College of Medicine to be their associate dean for uh, research and innovation. Um, she understands the innovation process, and I see her definitely bringing others into that. So we have the high tech, we have the, the mid to lower tech, and the capabilities, I think we'll see more growth from a gender perspective and maybe those um, mid to, to lower tech opportunities. But in the future, I think you see people like Dr. Najjar who can bring in um, you know, more and more women and empower them and tell them, you, you know, you've got this, you can do it. Um, so that's, I think you're going to see more on both ends. So what advice would you have for young women out there listening to this, and we've got a couple of examples of, of women who have certainly advanced in their particular field, but what advice would you give to a young woman out there thinking, you know, maybe I have an idea and I, I want to pursue it? Yeah, of course, we always welcome at the Innovation Center or elsewhere a, f- a phone call, a sit down, and we make that very non, non-threatening, of course. Um, the other thing I would recommend is that very quickly uh, they look at what their LinkedIn and LinkedIn from a professional networking tool is one of the best um, that I've seen and, and look through and, and find other women that are either in your industry or close by, potentially could be Ohio University alums. Uh, you know, if you're an Ohio University student, there's some matchmaking that happens through the Center for, on, for Entrepreneurship in order to, to match mentors. I think that's an opportunity. They have male and female uh, mentors that are available. But, but having that, and then I think it's, it's being able to just uh, take a deep breath and think about risk and think about if you can take that risk or you, you can't take that risk. But I would say you need a cheerleader. You need someone who can, you need both, right? You need somebody who's a realist and who's your cheerleader. And and how do you combine both of those things? So I find that having a mentor throughout my entire career has been extremely important. And I've had both male and female mentors. Carol Clark is one of the founders of X Squared Angels, a venture capital group that focuses on supporting diversity leadership in businesses across the Midwest. 
what we did was we founded an angel group that invests in women-led companies, and it's not just women in the management team. It's a diverse management team. And um, the idea is that we think that companies that are wed- led by women have a more difficult time getting funding. And so that was the reason for founding the group. The female has to have substantial equity in the company and a position of influence. Why do you think that women have a difficulty in, in the market getting venture capital? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that we tend to associate with, invest with people that are similar to ourselves, and a lot of the VC community is male. And so that's one thing. That's certainly not insurmountable, but I think that's one thing. I think also that women tend to found companies, start companies, sometimes by accident, but often around what we know. And so we might found a company about food or consumer product goods or services. And typically, these are not areas that venture capitalists are going to invest in. So I would argue that innovation, maybe innovation itself, has to be expanded to include additional things. Um, If you look at food, I think you'll find a lot of women investors who invest in or start companies that are uh, in the healthy food industry, in the local food market industry. Uh, Even things, I've seen things like insects, (laughs) which typically wouldn't fit a a VC interest for investment, hydroponic things. So I think the whole idea of innovation has to be expanded to include more women. So food would be one area. I think consumer product goods is another one. Uh, There are a lot of consumer product goods companies that are funded, but they have to kind of fit into a certain mold. And you'll see women starting ones that are just a little bit out of that mold. And then you get to the services. And I'll give you two, two recent examples that are eminently fundable companies, um, but they would not be considered by VCs typical or something they'd be interested in. One is a, a service where uh, taxi drivers, essentially drivers, it's like Uber, only they pick up children from school and take them wherever the children need to go. And they provide babysitters for the children. This has started on the West Coast, but it's expanding. That would not be something that VCs would even consider, typically. Another one is right here in Ohio, and this is a, a babysitting service also that offers extended hours. Often the daycare that's offered now goes nine to five or even eight to five. And it's very difficult sometimes to get there at five to pick up your child, either parent. It's not just for the women, but either parent have difficulty with that. So this organization is charging a premium. They're making money and they're offering extended hours for babysitting. And I think both of those companies would not even be considered by the venture capital a world as it exists today. You you have sort of a niche in this area, looking at the the, the businesses that you just explained. Your your group. Uh, do you see other groups like yours sprouting up across the country, or are you still very unique? Oh no, we're not unique. There are more and more sprouting up, and I can't take uh, I can't claim the origination of this idea. 
I got it from uh, the ladies in New York called Golden Seeds. And Golden Seeds is a large organization, a national organization. They have uh, branches in Southern California and San Francisco, Texas, and Boston and New York City. And uh, they really started this probably over 10 years ago, maybe 12, 13 years ago now. And so I became a member of Golden Seeds in New York City, and we go there oh, maybe three or four times a year for their meetings. And I thought, well, why don't we have something like that in the Midwest? And that was four years ago that we started X Squared Angels. And since that time, I've become aware of organizations like ours in the Chicago area, in the Detroit area, St. Louis, Texas. So they're sprouting up, I think. I think things are changing and are more encouraging for women entrepreneurs. We'll be back after this message. This program's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Beverly Jones is an executive coach in Washington, D.C., and author of a new book called Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. She tells us what holds women back from plunging into the entrepreneurial environment and what can be done about it. What do you think holds women back from becoming entrepreneurs or or innovators? All of the studies show that there are fewer women than men? Well, of course, there's some structural ecosystem kind of things like uh, a lack of financing, the difficulty in getting venture capital and so forth. But from my experience, I I think that the biggest thing is really fear. And that's the same thing, of course, that we all struggle with, men and women, entrepreneurs and otherwise. But I, I think really the thing a lot of women have to grapple with as they're thinking about a new venture is is fear and a crisis of confidence. Fear of failure, fear in their their own abilities, how, how would you, or all of those things? All, all of those things, and there are different ways to deal with those things. I And, and I'm speaking, I think, um, autobiographically, too. I, I think very often we have a sense that we're not good enough. And I see this more with my women 
clients than I see it with my men, that we're, we're not ready, that we're, we're not quite ready to take the leap, that people won't take us seriously enough. And then there's a fear of failure, um, that even if we think we're pretty good, you know, what if something bad happens? So the fear that we're not enough or the fear that something awful will happen and, and, and we'll fail and, and maybe just we're sometimes a fear of making fools of ourselves. So how do women get over that hump, or especially young women who might be thinking, you know, I, I could carve my own career as an entrepreneur if, if I could just get over this this sense of, of fear? Can I give you three answers? Sure. One of them is that uh, we start noticing what we're afraid of and uh, the degree to which we're really fanning the fire of fear with the voice inside our head, very often um, we have a voice saying, oh, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to look like an idiot. Nobody will want to talk to you. And it's not so much the reality of the situation which is holding us back, but it's that voice in our head at 2 o'clock in the morning which causes us to hesitate. So being aware of how much we're responding to our own internal voice and learning to manage that, to, to recognize that's not the real you, that's just some old you know, gremlin in your head, that can help us move past it. And I, I think that's part of developing emotional intelligence and maturity, just learning to manage that voice. Another thing that I think can be tremendously helpful is finding support from other women. I see networks of women getting together to talk about their respective businesses. I see women um, developing mentoring relationships, sometimes reciprocal mentoring with an older person working with a younger person who maybe is more tech-savvy and sharing mentoring. And I see women just calling each other up for help. That's something that... um, has been important in my life, and over time I found it much easier to reach out for help. And I found that when I'm working with younger women, when I'm working with other women, I always seem to gain more than I end up giving away, even if I'm the mentor. So I think developing uh, a, a strong network of other women is important. And, and then the final thing is um, practice failure. Get over um that fear, failing isn't all that bad. It's, if you reach a certain age and you've um, tried a few things, there's going to be some things that you didn't do so well. Maybe you fell on your face in some way or another. And once you've done that a few times, you find that life moves on. It's not all that bad, and you learn a lot. Sometimes failure is forced on you, but sometimes I encourage my clients who are doing really well and are starting to get that fear that they may stumble, I encourage them to try something new, you know, take up a, a sport or a hobby or an activity that they're not good in and and learn that you can do something badly and still learn from it and get a lot of joy from it. So I'd say reaching out to other people, noticing what's holding you back in your own head, and then finding ways to deal with the fact that we all fail and it's not that big a deal. Finally, on a positive note, Jane Grody Abel, 
the chairwoman of the board of directors of Donato's Pizza Incorporated, tells about her personal experience rising through the corporate ranks to now be the leader and innovator within a major corporation with over 4,500 employees and over 165 locations in seven states. In 1988, when you graduated from Ohio State University, the Ohio State University, I should say, uh, you went to work for the your father's corporation and your family corporation, but you had a, an interesting title, uh, Chief People Officer. That's not a normal title for a corporation, but it seems to be normal for your corporation. Tell us about that. That's interesting. Thank you for asking about that. Actually, um, I graduated from the Ohio State University with a degree in organizational communication and development. And so um, I w- started in our training department. And at that time, so this is early, this is late 80s, early 90s. At that time, a lot of companies had what was then called personnel departments. And so not only is it unusual to call your um, human resource department, people department, but it was certainly unusual to do it way back in the early 90s. And I think why, honestly, that kind of we came to that discussion was what I noticed was, and this was just in our family business at the time, that the people that were seated at the table um, were the people making the decisions, right? So my dad was our chief executive officer. My brother was our chief operations officer. And we also had a chief financial officer, And, you know, belittled me a little bit to say, you know, all those things are important, but without the people, none of those things can be executed. So you're not going to have finances to look at unless you've got the right people in the organization or operationally the right people to execute what you need to in order to have the right strategy for the CEO. And so my brother was a huge fan, obviously, but um, that was one of the first things that I recommended that instead of calling it a typical personnel department or human resource department, but that the the people should have a seat at the table. So that's, we elevated the role for not just the people department, but for the people in the organization to be in that, what they call now, right, suite, C-suites, but right. to also be at the table and have a voice. And so that's kind of how it came about. Obviously, it was a family business, and then, it, you know, it was an easy thing for my mom and dad and my brother and all of us to wrap our arms around and say, of course, that's the right thing to do. But in 1999, when your business was sold to McDonald's, uh, you became a senior VP for development and franchise development. But also, did you carry on that that people function even with McDonald's for the time that you were with them? I did. I did. And it's probably the closest role to my heart. So um, it was something I had obviously already been fulfilling and I would say an interesting dynamic. So we brought on a new CEO for McDonald's. And I talk a lot about about this in the book, but my experiences of going from working from a family company, family business, to all of a sudden the world's largest restaurant company places a new CEO in our company. And um, I guess, you know, I had lots of learnings. All of a sudden, the person signing the front of my check was not my father's name anymore. Right. (laughs) And so created a bit of anxiety, but also a wonderful learning professional experience. And through that, originally, I always say, you know, if the CEO could have fired me, um, I had an employment agreement. He probably would have. Like, I was one of those annoying, 
<laughs> very vocal, didn't understand politics, and is off as all the time to really, I think, then getting grounded and a good foothold of being a little bit more authentic with who I was. Um, and then all of a sudden he began promoting me into lots of different positions and I think saw some value in me, um, probably more so than I did it at the time. In 2003, I understand uh, McDonald's was going in a different direction. Uh, you and your family saw that as an opportunity to buy back the company. Uh, that had to be a, a stressful time, but also an intense workload during that period. Yeah, it was. It was not only stressful, but exactly to your point, it was very stressful. Um, but we were able to, in, in an intense workload, I was able to put a team of people together. So the whole idea, you know, how do you buy back your family business from the world's largest restaurant company? All I knew was um, my brother had left the company, my mom left the company, my sister left the company, so my dad and I were the last family members. I say the last, I was the last one standing. And when the rumor hit the street, and then for all the right reasons, McDonald's needs to focus back on their core business again, that they were going to sell our company. They had brought on a CFO to focus 100% on closing down the restaurants and selling all the assets. And so um, my dad walked in the office, and I was just like, you know, that we've got 5,000 people counting on us. We've got to buy this company back. And I have, I need you, and you're really smart, and I need your leadership, but I really need your money because I don't have enough money. <laughs> and, I, and I also don't know how to do it. So what I know enough about is I'm curious enough just to figure out how to get the right people at the table. And so, you know, you can read all the books, good to great, but it's about having the right people at the table to have that discussion. So we brought in the best of the best, uh, best of the best attorney and real estate and financial people. Um, and then really had about a team of seven that worked off the clock, honestly, pro bono at the time and figured out the best way to present back to McDonald's and buying the company back. So I took vacation days because I well, honestly, we didn't feel it was right to have McDonald's paying us to figure out how to buy the company back. So um, it was a fascinating time, and it took 10 months to put the proposal together and then present to McDonald's. You uh, received it back, and then you became president and CEO in, in 2006. Uh, no longer had to ask permission. You were the one in charge at, at, at that point. Did you change the company's philosophy from what it originally was, or did you just fine-tune the philosophy that your father had had when he started it? Yeah, our mission uh, for the last 53 years since my dad started it is to promote goodwill. Um, our name and others means to give a good thing. So those are easy core values to go back to. And I would say they were always our values. They just got blurred a little bit during some of our growth strategies through McDonald's. And so when that happens, your culture gets stretched and people get stretched. So when we bought the company back, uh, we had a $10.5 million turnaround. So we went from being a negative um, cash flow to very positive. But the, first, the one thing I would talk about is that's how delicate brands are. They're so delicate that we didn't change anything that year. We didn't change product. We didn't introduce some new silver bullet marketing campaign. Um, all Honestly, I believe that happened that year is our people really started caring about who they were serving again. 
and they cared about um, the company they were working for. So our promise and our mission stayed the same throughout that entire 53 years, regardless of who owned us. But what happened was I think the people that were serving actually started caring about it again and brought it to life through their actions. Talk, if you could, a little bit, Jane, about that caring aspect. I, I know they cared for your father. I know they cared for you. But they also cared for their fellow employees from everything I've read. How do you engender that kind of corporate mentality? <laughs> well, don't we wish it was really easy? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could package it and, and bottle it, right? Yeah. I do. We talk about um, there's a couple things. One, I think culture and people can't be the soft stuff. It can't be the soft stuff in the organization, and and you have to be able to talk about love and loving your associates, and that because they're family. And I mean, if you think about how much time you spend at work, the the people that you work around become your family. So for us, there is process. So we have an onboarding process and a selection process and a training process that are all. I don't want to say rigid, but very important to us because it helps tell our story to our new associates. But the most important thing I think a company can do to maintain a healthy culture, because there's always a culture. It's either healthy or unhealthy, right? And so to maintain a healthy culture, I think is really, really important when you have those individuals that are of high character, high high values and high morals, and they're aligned with who you are as a company, then work with them and, and help them get the results and develop and grow. But when you have the people that are getting the results, but they have very low values and or their behaviors are not in alignment with who you are as a company and your, your mission statement, the most important thing you can do is to let those people become alumni quickly. So acting fast on people that are not in alignment with who you are it's probably one of the most important things that you can do to build a sustainable culture that is healthy and really flames and the soul of your company then become, then comes alive. You've been involved with leadership. You've won a lot of leadership awards. 2013, the Kent Clapp CEO Leadership Award. You're a founding member of the Ross Leadership Institute. You're on the uh, leader, Women's Leadership Network Advisory Council in Otterbein. You work with the Women's Leadership Council of the United Way. So I'd like to concentrate just a bit, if we could, on your concept of, of leadership. Uh, I, I've read some of the materials. You talk about the four C's of success. Uh, could you talk about those and how they relate to leadership also? Sure. Um, yeah, I have a couple of chapters dedicated to that in the book, and the reality of that for me is my most of my learnings through my experience of uh, working for the world's largest restaurant company, McDonald's. And during that time, I found myself, um, I, I, would, I wouldn't say changing my leadership, but maybe my behaviors not necessarily aligned with uh, our mission, and, and, and not in a negative way, so it wasn't unethical. I wasn't doing or behaving in a way that was unethical. But I found my my leadership traits and behaviors just um, really changing to align with who was leading the company at the time. And that caused me to pause because, one, it's not who I was. And all of a sudden I was coming to work and I would have to put armor on And before I got out of the car and just pause and think, like, okay, this is who I have to be at work. And 
so what what was good about it was it helped me just kind of take a step back and think about who I was as a leader. And so when I talk about the four C's, I talk about the importance of having character and not just having character yourself, but surrounding yourself with people of character. And, you know, obviously it is about honesty and integrity and transparency and authenticity. And but those character traits are really, really important, not only for yourself, um, but that you're surrounding yourself with people like that, but also you're working for an organization that believes in the same things you do. So alignment of that is really, really important. My second trait I talk about a lot, which I think is really critical and I learn every single day, is courage. Because I know a lot of people that have character, and I myself found myself um, during those times with character, but I didn't have the courage. I lost my courage. I lost my voice. I didn't have the courage to speak up anymore. And so a lot of times if you have character but you don't have the courage to live it out loud, and oftentimes you'll become really a product of your own environment. And um, while you may believe in honesty, you may not be able to act on that honesty because you don't have the courage to do it. And so I think that's a really critical component for a leadership trait. Uh, the third one being um, conviction. And really what I, I really learned during that time is you really better love what you do because you're going to be doing it, right? Like <laughs> you're in it. 24-7, right? 24-7, and especially if you own the business or you're you're really, you know, it's become part of you. So you have to love it. You have to have conviction for it. You have to wake up in the middle of the night excited about thinking about wanting to do it and wanting to make change. And it doesn't mean you're, like, happy all the time because it's stressful, but you really have to, at the end of the day, be able to look in the mirror and say, yeah, not only this is what I love doing, but it's important to me and I want to make a difference doing it. And then the last one, which is compassion, I saw so many different people act in ways that they may have had the right courage and character, um, but they didn't do it with love. And I just, I don't think we talk about love enough and well, definitely not in politics right now, but right. certainly in business. I just, I, yeah, you have to be able to demonstrate love. If you really truly want your people to care about what they're doing, you really truly have to love them and you have to care about them. And if you don't, then I think, you know, you're probably in the long, wrong line of work. You should probably work with something that doesn't require human traits and um, behaviors such as love. So those are the four C's that I think are important to leadership. I, I read another quote of yours telling people to be yourself, be true to who you are, and don't be afraid to live your values at work. Uh, those are terms that you don't hear often in a corporate environment. True. <laughs> And I think that because I lost myself during that time, that's that was my lesson. So um, I think people are afraid to talk about it because um, I don't know that people even recognize you fall into it, right? Like um, I think as individuals, when you work in an environment that may be a little fear-based, then you begin behaving in such a way that um, the culture, the environment rewards. And because I, was, because I did that, because I lost myself and I lost my voice during that time, I was able to recognize it when I came back out of it. Because everybody comes back out of it. You either leave the workplace right. and go work somewhere else, or you have some aha moment. And I had an aha moment, and it was before we bought the company back that made me recognize that I was, I was losing myself. I was losing my soul into in the work I was doing. 
Also, as an element of leadership, I, I, I admire you for saying that uh, you should hire people smarter than yourself and get out of their way. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That <laughs> uh, was a great, I think I learned that. And um, a book, Good to Great, but I learned it way early on when I was came out of uh, The Ohio State University and I was heading up our people department. And I didn't have the experience. My dad was absolutely right. All I knew was I really liked people, and I liked being around people, and that was the reason I was in the business. But my dad had said to me, I was 22, he said, "Um, if you don't hire the experience, then I'm going to hire the experience for you. And I was like, oh, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) I knew what that meant. That meant he was going to hire someone I would report into. And uh, so I was very fortunate early on to have that, And what happened was, at first, I thought, well, there's no way someone's going to allow me, you know, someone's going to come on board and work for the little family member that doesn't have all this experience. But I found the most incredible gentleman who was the senior vice president of human resources for Bennigan, the restaurant under Ponderosa, and he had 40-some years of experience. Um, He's currently the um, chief administration officer for Fellowship of Christian Athletes today. But he came on board, and he reported to me, and he taught me not only everything I I learned about human resources for our people department, but also just a lot about leadership and honesty and humility, and really great guy. His name was Ken Williams. How important do you feel that mentors are to to young people? Uh, I think it's critical, mostly because you need that uh, confidential voice of reason. And oftentimes in a work environment, you know, there's emotions and there's frustrations and there's times you want to vent. And sometimes it's just not appropriate to vent to your peers or to your boss all the time. But it's certainly appropriate to have a mentor that you can say, here's what's happening, here's what's going on. And you can have an objective point of view from someone that can help you calmly look at it in a very different light. And I, I, you know, I don't know that I valued the role of mentors until truly I became one. And then what I recognized was um, you need to make sure you're finding the mentors who are, are, have the courage to be honest with you and not just be part of your life, but have the courage to be honest with you and um, allow you to build that trust where they can share things with you in such a way that, you know, it's going to be transparent. I know that now that you're the chairwoman of the board, you've made at least a few public statements that you have more time to be with your family than when you were CEO. Talk about that work-life balance that I think perhaps impacts women more than men. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you for that. And interesting, it shouldn't, right? Right. So here's what I always walk away with, like, why is it okay for men to have those work weeks and not women. But then you say, why is it okay, period? Like, all of us should be trying to create a work-life balance that we can spend those hours with our children in a very different way. And for me, I was very blessed. So I was able to change my role to do it, mostly because I failed at it. <laughs> so my son, who's 28, and, you know, when he was in high school, that's when we were buying the company back. Right. And it didn't do a very good job balancing at all. And I think I fell into the same trap everybody else did. I had a stay-at-home husband, and I was kind of like, oh, well, he's there, and I don't need to be. And the reality is our children need both. 
They need both parents to be active and to have a voice and to be present. And it doesn't always mean you have to miss a meeting to get to their practice or pick them up. There are other resources out there to do that, but it does mean you should have every single one of their games on your calendar and you should every time prioritize, gosh, do I really need to be at that meeting? I'd rather, you know, I need to make the decision to be at home with my son or daughter. And so I'm still learning that every single day, um, every, every year. And it's a constant reminder. And I think the most important thing you can do is prioritize your personal life on your calendar, just like you do with your business meetings. What do you say to a, a young woman in college or, or just out and looking ahead at her career, trying to be perhaps an innovator or an entrepreneur and, and facing all kinds of issues? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I wish I had an easy answer. I will say two things. One, I'm not a man, so I don't know how much easier it would have been for a man. Right. <laughs> um, so I, all I know uh, was the feeling that I got when I signed at the front of the check for the first time when we bought the company back, um, and it was my cash versus um, really being brought up in a family business. So a very different feeling. Um, taking a risk. But I think for young females, I, I think it's really important that we don't try to be something that we're not. And all I mean by that is if we try to live in a man's world, then we're going to lose the value that we bring. And, I, you know, I remember I was just telling my daughter this the other day when she was actually it was a soccer game and she couldn't quit crying, right? Like we were losing. It was for the regional championships. And I said, you know, I remember that feeling. Like, I, I remember being in a meeting and my dad would say, just quit crying. <laughs> and I, you know what? We bring emotions. And sometimes emotions are seen differently. And, and for a man, it, it may come out differently than for a female. And I guess for what, what I learned is we shouldn't have to apologize for who we are. We shouldn't have to change who we are because what we bring to the table is valuable. And that's why I use compassion, because I think men and women have compassion, and we may demonstrate it differently, but I think it's a really, really important trait for leadership. So for women, I would say, don't be afraid to be who you are, and don't change yourself to fit in a man's world. Today, we've talked with Jennifer Simon, Executive Director of Regional Innovation at Ohio University. Carol Clark, founder of X Squared Angels, a venture capital group supporting women. Beverly Jones, executive coach and author of a new book, Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. And Jane Grody Abel, chairwoman of the board of directors of Donato's Pizza Incorporated. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.